Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Pirelli tires. Go to TireRack.com slash sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. This is the best of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Well, the Houston Astros were in the zone early. Hugh Darvish was not in the zone. Another disastrous uh, starting game from Hugh Darvish basically threw the World Series right out the window uh, in that first inning and two-thirds. This was... As if you sit around and watch a 10 or 15 hour television show and then the finale is awful and you question why you were ever involved in it to begin with. Now, if you are a Houston Astros fan, congratulations. Huge win. You guys deserve the championship applause. If you are a Dodgers fan, uh, condolences. If you are like me or the vast majority of our listening audience right now across all 50 states, as the morning begins on Thursday, I feel like you believe what I do, which is this was a letdown. Game 7 did not live up to the hype at all. It was over early. The Dodgers never really made a serious run at this thing. They left a lot of guys on base. They never cut into the lead in a way that made you think, oh, we're a swing away here from being in a tie ball game. There was never a moment, really, where I felt like the Astros were in significant danger of losing this game. Now, there were several moments early in the game where I thought, okay, if they get a hit here, the Dodgers can make this at least competitive. They can make it 5-2. to two. They can make it 5-3. to three. And we never got that hit. And we never got to when the Dodgers were within hailing distance. And I think a lot of people out there right now who watched this game last night came away with a question, why if Clayton Kershaw was capable of coming in as a reliever for as many innings as he was and in pitching so well in all of those innings, why would you not go ahead and start him for Game 7? I I, I think that's a fascinating question. Now, the answer may be, well, we wanted to stick to routine. You Darvish was ready. He's really healthy. He had the ability at a live arm because he pitched poorly. We thought that he would not completely tank again. All those things may well be true, but if you know you have the best pitcher in baseball and he's capable of coming in and throwing multiple innings, why not just go ahead and start the game with him? I I, I think it's an incredibly intriguing question. Now, some of you may also say, well, Kershaw pitched so well because he came in and already the pressure was off because the Dodgers were down five runs. And maybe that's an argument you want to make. That Kershaw wouldn't have been as effective if they had known the Astros had that he was coming in, if they had known that this was, that this process was going to play itself out. 
I think that's probably the biggest question that most people have in the wake of Game 7. You Darvish was just so bad if you've got the best pitcher in baseball on in your bullpen and you're able to bring him in in the third inning like the Dodgers did. Why not go ahead and start him in the first inning? I'll ask that question here coming up. We'll continue to discuss. John Morosi is going to join us bright and early in the morning next segment, our Major League Baseball insider, and he will help break down what happened between the Astros and the Dodgers. But first, let's go ahead and go to the audio clips for those of you who may not have been awake late last night when Game 7 officially ended. Uh, Let's go ahead and bring up the final call of the game from Fox, Joe Buck, and John Smoltz. Sorry, I guess it's actually the Astros radio network. Pitch on the way. Round ball right side into the shift to his left. Altuve has it in short right. Throws to first. And the Astros are 2017 World Series champions. For the first time ever, the Astros are baseball's best. Well, it took them 56 seasons, but they got it done in dramatic fashion. Game seven on the road at Dodger Stadium, and the Astros prevail. That is 790 AM, I believe is correct. The Houston Astros radio affiliate locally in Houston, which is also our affiliate station. So thanks to all of you in Houston who listen to Outkick to start your mornings. Um, We are on down there as well as we're on 560 AM in LA. So we had both the Dodgers and the Astros uh, 570, uh, sorry, excuse me, 570 in LA and 790 in Houston, correct? Correct. All right. Get all these different numbers rolling around in your head. Sometimes it's tough to make sure you get them all right. And uh, we're on both of those stations. We're on in Houston and we're on in L.A. Um, lots to uh, lots to discuss about this game, but uh, also lots of great reaction from Houston. I feel like many of you were rooting for Houston, for the Astros, because of what happened with the hurricane and the resulting flooding. And uh, that certainly was a compelling storyline as the Astros made their run here through the playoffs. And uh, that was a little bit of a discussion point. But moreover, the Astros just seemed pretty joyous about finally winning a title. Here is uh, here are some of the audio clips of the reactions from the Houston Astros. Our team believed in each other all year through the good times and the bad times, you know, through a rough stretch in August, getting down against a very good New York team. You know, there's there's a lot of things that happen, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. To bring a championship back to a city that desperately needed one is is a surreal feeling. That's George Springer. Here is Altuve. I think the key was, like, we stay very humble about the team we are. We all know how good and how much talent we have in that clubhouse, but we never take it for granted. And uh, meanwhile, the Dodgers were sitting around trying to figure out what exactly happened that led to effectively an offensive no-show in terms of producing runs and getting hits when they really needed to in Game 7 in front of their home audience. You has been one of our top three starters all year uh, or since we acquired him, and he had a bad one in Houston. Uh, But to think that we would start Alex on short is something he's never done you don't know what you're going to get in either one of those two guys, and to think that they're going to start the game, I think it's unfair to you, and there's always going to be second-guessing, but uh, we felt good with you starting the game. That's the Dodger manager as he tries to convey why he decided to go with you, Darvish. And look, it's easy to sit back in retrospect and say, okay, why not go with Clayton Kershaw? Remember, especially as Clayton Kershaw didn't pitch that well with a four-run lead in Game 5. But having said all of that, let me bring in my guy, Danny G. Uh, should the Dodgers have gone with Clayton Kershaw to start Game 7? No, I don't think so. I mean, we could all sit back and say, oh, they should have did this and should have did that. But Dodger fans were fine with you getting the start. We talked about it on the show yesterday morning that you was all set up for a dramatic Hollywood finish yes. because of what happened with Yuli Gurriel and all of that. So. I mean, look, if I had to do it all over again, I would have started Alex Wood, who was ready. He was fresher than Kershaw. Uh, He statistically has been the Dodgers' best pitcher in the World Series. 
So I would have went with Wood, and then you could have had Kershaw throw in those middle innings, then gone to Morrow, and then finish off the game with Jansen. I think that would have been the winning combination. Are you with me that this was an incredibly anticlimactic end to what had been a great series? Not necessarily that the Astros won, certainly. I think either way, it was going to be exciting to see who won, either the Dodgers or the Astros. But to have that many close games and that many, you know, kind of pulse-pounding moments throughout this series – and then not just to have the Astros win 5-1, to one, but have them jump out so soon and get up 5-zip and never really be questioned. It'd been different if they had suddenly scored five runs in the eighth inning or something like that. But there was just not any suspense or trepidation or uncertainty in this game really at all. And that was the exact opposite of the first six. Yeah, you know what this game reminded me of? A really bad NFL Thursday or Monday game where there's tons of field goals. That's what it seemed like because the other games were all, you know, barn burners, 41 to 38 NFL type games. This one was like a defensive battle, 17 to 3, with, uh, you know, the team jumping out 17 to nothing uh, on their opponent. And the Dodgers never found their, their groove, never got into a rhythm. McCann went out to the pitcher's mound 100 times. There was a lot of pitching changes going on. The the game just seemed stilted from the start. Uh, and some interesting stats, the Dodgers actually out-hit the Astros 6-5, to five, but obviously they left 10 runners on base. You can't do that and expect to win any baseball games. Um, you know, and the, the Astros were shut out after they scored those five runs. The rest of the game, obviously, Kershaw threw – Four shutout innings. He only allowed two hits, no runs. So the Astros got that early lead, and then they were just, like, holding on to it. So I think that's why it felt boring for the remainder of the game. Yeah, it did. And also because, like you said, the 10 runners left on base, it was constant anticipation that you might have a game developing and then nothing that actually ends up happening. And so, again, I think what was so great about this series through the first six games, and certainly game five, I mean, think about how much different – people would be talking today if we had flipped Game 5 and Game 7. So uh, if uh, if suddenly the the Game 7 had been this 13-12 to 12 extra inning game with tons of swings of emotion, then everybody calling in today and everybody reacting to the game would have felt entirely different. But as a result, I feel like uh, we did not get a Hollywood ending. We didn't even get much of an ending. We got a uh, first couple of innings where the Astros took control of it. Like I said, congratulations to the Astros, to the fans in Houston who have rooted for them for a long time. This is a sweet redemption. And for Dodger fans, look, the team is really good. Odds are that you will be back in the postseason again, but it is incredibly bitter to get to Game 7 and then lose it, and not just lose it, but not perform in a way where really the game was ever severely in doubt after the first couple of innings. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. John, we were just talking in the opening segment about the way this just felt totally anticlimactic. We had this great buildup to Game 7, and then boom, right in the first two innings, the Astros get up 5 nothing, and the Dodgers never can really marshal a response that puts this game in doubt. Were you with us that this just felt like uh, a game seven that didn't really live up to the quality of the overall series? Uh, A little bit, and certainly there wasn't the back-and-forth drama that we saw in the first six games. I think that it was very telling that in five of the first six games it was either a one-run game or a two-run game, and then the one game that wasn't, as as Joe Buck mentioned last night, was tied entering the ninth uh, before the Dodgers went ahead there in game four to win 6-2. So, you're right. It was uh, it was a little bit anticlimactic, but to me, Clay, the the overall the the story of the uh, of the overall series and the narrative, I think, was still very powerful about what Houston had accomplished. Uh, I think still one of the great World Series of our of our lifetimes. Uh, maybe not a great classic Game Seven, but still, to me, I, I think a a series that is worthy of of being classified as one of the best that certainly we've ever seen. Yesterday we talked about whether or not Clayton Kershaw was going to pitch. You said you felt very confident that he was. He came in, I believe, at the top of the third inning and pitched for four innings, did not allow any runs, only two hits. And obviously a big point of discussion became, should the Dodgers have gone ahead and started Clayton Kershaw to begin this game? Your thoughts on that criticism. I think it's fair to say Monday morning 
quarterbacking because right. I didn't hear anybody saying it before you Darvish went out and performed really poorly. That's correct. And and to me, Clay, I would say that in retrospect, sure, uh, it, it, uh, it's a sort of a convenient argument to make. But, but again, no one, <laughs> none of us certainly, I mean, certainly I wasn't having that thought uh, yesterday afternoon, so it'd be a little disingenuous of me to say that that's what Dave Roberts should have done. Uh, Kershaw got into the game. He threw his four innings. He threw 43 pitches. Uh, that's about what you could have expected from him. Um, if if there is second guessing to be done uh, regarding Dave Roberts' maneuverings, it probably is suggesting that he was too slow to remove Darvish and and get Morrow in there to sort of quiet down the second inning. Uh, of course, he waited until after Springer's home run, uh, which from which really the Dodgers never recovered. So that that to me, if there's going to be a criticism, it would be that. Uh, and and that. Certainly, it'll be a tough way for Dave Roberts to go through the winter time. He had a great season. He had a great postseason, I think, in many respects. But that was maybe the one move being a bit slow in that second inning that that really cost the Dodgers because the Astros notably did not score off the bullpen. The bullpen uh, accounted for let's see, seven and a third innings, no runs, uh, and actually only two hits. So after. Springer's home run. That was really uh, the, the end of the scoring, so to speak, uh, for the uh, for the Houston Astros. And from that point on, the Dodgers they, they had some moments where it looked as though they were one base hit away from really changing the nature of the game. They were one swing away from taking a lead at different times, especially early on. Uh, but they, they weren't able to, to capitalize on that. And, and I think that Charlie Morton becomes a hero there. Morton with four innings to close it out in the last. 50 years, Clay, only two pitchers have closed out or, or finished a World Series Game 7 with relief outings of four or more innings. It's Charlie Morton and Madison Bumgarner three years ago. It's amazing stat. Another guy who had an incredible series for the Astros, George Springer. How good was he? Contextualize his performance. Clay, he was fantastic. A very worthy uh, MVP, of course, tying the record alongside Reggie Jackson and, and Chase Elliott for the most home runs in a in a World Series. And I, I think it's it's fitting for him to do it. He was really uh, and Altuve arrived just before he did. Uh, but in, in some respects, Springer has become the heart and soul of that team. I, I think that if you, if you were around that team and, and you asked people who is who is the conscience of the room, so to speak, who is who is the one that drives both the conversation in the clubhouse, the playlist on the on the uh, on the sound system in the clubhouse before the game? Uh, who is the life of, of the stretch time and BP? It's George Springer. Uh, I think that as much as Correa and Altuve are our, our bigger stars, and and Bregman may well become a better player as time goes on, Springer makes them go. And uh, I, I, I'm so impressed by George. An amazing story uh, with with his background. His father actually is has argued cases before the Connecticut Supreme Court. He's a very accomplished attorney, and that's George Springer II, George Springer I. So George's grandfather was a, an immigrant from Panama who came to New Britain, Connecticut, and, and uh, ran the, that chapter of the NAACP, and, and was very involved in the community there. So he's from just a fantastic family, uh, and he's overcome a speech impediment to become a great spokesperson uh, for, for youths, especially who are struggling with the same thing. So uh, he is just he's a great story, and, and he's a great person on top of that. So really, I think... I think a, a very worthy MVP and someone who I believe, Clay, will use this honor and this platform uh, to do good for our country. We're talking to John Morosi at J-O-N-M-O-R-O-S-I. You can go find him on Twitter. What does this mean for Houston? Well, it's first of all, it's, it's interesting, Clay. I, I like this stat because it sort of ties all of our sports together. Until last night, the Astros were the second oldest franchise in major North American professional sports to never win a championship. The oldest is Texas, the Rangers. And, of course, they came one strike away on multiple occasions in Game 6 of 2011. Then it was the Astros, and then it was the Falcons, who I understand came relatively close to leaving that list <laughs> yes. as well within the last calendar year. So uh, it's interesting that the opportunities to, to leave that list have come up a lot, uh, and the Astros seized theirs. And that's a pretty special moment for a franchise. And, and again, the first the first championship for Houston overall since the Rockets. So there's, there's a lot 
to to think about what this means for certainly a city that's still very much recovering from Hurricane Harvey uh, and what this this team represents. Uh, I go back to the story of, of when the Astros made the move for Justin Verlander and, and the conversation between Jim Crane, the owner, and, and Jeff Luno, the GM, about how they felt in that moment that the city really needed a boost. The team needed a boost. They had a very poor month of August, and, and they made the Verlander trade. So I think on so many levels a, a – perfect fitting to the end of this season and a great tribute to a very resilient town that clay i know from the time i'm sure you spent there and, and uh, that i've been lucky enough to spend there as well a, a special american city that that welcomes you in on day one i've always said that if you if you move to houston you're considered a local on the first day and they wrap your their arms around you and they they welcome you as one of their own and i think it's a very special place for that and and uh, i think that the, a lot of people in the country even those that were rooting for the dodgers i think uh, this morning should wake up and and feel happy for, for the city of Houston that they are champions of the baseball world. On the other side, a bitter loss for the Dodgers, who have not won a title since 1988, lose at home in Game 7. Now, both these teams were really excellent in the regular season, winning 100 or more. Uh, but how much, how many years do you think the Dodgers have left in this core? They're still very young. Is this a team that you believe will be back in the postseason multiple years? How many more years do you think they can make a run with their 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 basically core group of uh, athletes right now? Well, they can do it. There's no question about it. And we've seen the teams that have lost Game 7s in, in recent years. So the Royals lose in 2014. They came back and won it in 15. The Indians lost Game 7 last year and really had a phenomenal season this year. Uh, they just, just sort of tripped up against the Yankees in the first round. So I, I fully expect the Dodgers to be back in the playoffs next year. However, it's a very competitive division uh, with, with two other playoff teams just this year. And I think, unfortunately for Clayton Kershaw, it'll be a it'll be a tough winter. He had uh, a, a lot of opportunities, especially in that fifth game. That, that that's a game where you've got a four run lead and you've got the best pitcher on the planet on the mound, um, and, and he could not win that ball game. I think that that to me, uh, a lot of the criticism he gets for the postseason performances have been unfair. The Dodgers are eight and two in his last ten playoff starts, so he's still. I think he's been very good in October, at least the last few years. But that game five, I think, will be a motivating factor for uh, someone who is already the hardest worker in baseball. Uh, but, but it's going to be a tough winter time for Clayton. I think he's at least he was able to, to, to clinch the, the pennant there against the Cubs uh, in the NLCS and have that be a positive note. But this is a team that got back to the World Series, but that is, I think, still craving that, that big-time triumph uh, to really cap off what's been, I think, a, a great renaissance for that franchise, but still one victory short, and, and really in Game 5, one one solid relief outing or one solid start by Kershaw away from right now being the World Series champions. We're talking to John Morosi. Go follow him on Twitter, at John Morosi, breaking down Game 7, the Houston Astros, your World Series champs as you wake up across the country. What about you, Darvish? How do you bounce back if you are him, and so much of pitching is psychological, and you have performed as poorly as he did in two different starts in the World Series. I, I saw him pop up a stat during the game. Nobody had been removed in two different World Series starts in less than two innings since, I think, 1960 or 1961. Right. It's almost a, a situation without precedent. How does he bounce back from this? It's a great question, Clay, and it's a tough timing for you, Darvish, because, of course, uh, on the heels of this, he now becomes a free agent. He's a free agent right now. He's one of the uh, one of the marquee names on the on the overall uh, free agent pitching market. And as much as teams will tell you, well, we're not going to be swayed by two outings this way or that way. Th- there's no way to to erase this from the memories of those GMs and those owners who are making those decisions. Um, he still has. I, I think he is he is still healthy. I don't think that's the concern. Uh, that the velocity at times was still good, but the command just wasn't there. And uh, was he struggling with the baseball, which which has been so much of a topic of conversation, which, by the way, I expect will continue to be that during the course of the coming weeks. Um, this is a, a very difficult time, I'm sure, for him to process this and, and know that he had really two rough outings that, that I think are, are going to be not, not only the lasting um, impression before free agency, but, but in many ways the proximate cause of his team's demise in this series. So uh, I think that's, that's a very, very tough way to enter the, the, the offseason. Does it affect how eager or not eager the Dodgers would be to bring him back? We'll see. But I think that one of the great ironies here, Clay, is that uh, during the month of July, uh, and the Tigers were having some conversations trade-wise with, with teams, the Dodgers did not want 
Justin Verlander's contract. They were a little bit wary of that. And uh, lo and behold, it's Verlander who, who, who was so big for the Astros and wins his very first World Series ring last night. And, and it's Darvish, who they did get uh, at the deadline, who, who struggled so much in the World Series. So uh, it's amazing how, so in so many ways, Clay, those decisions that are made at the middle of the season are determinative uh, for the way that the World Series ended last night. After the game, A-Rod, and I saw other uh, individuals in baseball making the suggestion as well, saying that you, Darvish, was maybe tipping his uh, pitches. Did you pick up on that at all? Do you think there's any truth to it? I think that we'll we'll probably learn more about that in the coming days, Clay. Uh, When you look at Darvish, he was tipping his pitches earlier in the season as well. Uh, His last start before the trade uh, in late July, uh, he really had a a rough outing for the Rangers, and, and they basically diagnosed that as, uh, he was tipping his pitches, and it was corrected by the time he made his next outing. It's possible he was tipping his pitches again. Uh, certainly uh, the Astros have very, very strong advanced scouting and, and analytical departments that would allow them to discern that if it was happening. Um, the concern, though, is the Dodgers do the same thing. They have, they have one of the best video scouting departments as well, and, and, and they're very, very on top of things from that standpoint. So I, I do wonder if they would have found a way, the Dodgers, to – to help correct that on the mound, I'm, I'm sure that they, they vetted all the video from, from his uh, earlier start in the series in Game 3 and tried to give him as much information as possible to then correct the, those, uh, uh, those, those t- if he was tipping what he would have been doing. So we'll see. If he was tipping, I think that it was not exactly a, a, a secret that this could have been a concern based on the way things went during the season, and he was unable to correct it, which on some level is, is even more concerning. So, and just to sort of fill people in on what that means, it usually means if you're tipping your pitches, you're, you're doing something of a, obviously, a body language variety. Maybe if you're throwing the breaking ball, you're going to, you're, you're fanning out your, the, the, the gloves, the, the fingers on your glove a little bit more, or you're holding the glove higher or lower that sort of gives you away. And, and that information is, that can be transmitted like wildfire through the industry. And, and if the Astros had it, uh, Darvish was unable to adjust between games three and seven. Another big storyline in this series and the playoffs in general was the baseball and whether or not it was juiced. Is this a story that completely fades away? Do you think it's something that reemerges? What's the lasting impact of that discussion? Well, Clay, the, the, uh, the GMs of uh, Major League Baseball will meet here in less than two weeks uh, for their annual uh, session uh, down in Florida, and, and I, I expect this is going to be a huge topic there. Uh, the competition committee, I'm sure, will, will be getting into detail on this and trying to figure out what happened. Because uh, as we talked before, uh, and Tom Verducci's reporting on this was, uh, was really extraordinarily solid, as it always is, uh, the balls, just, they look different. Not only do they feel different, according to multiple accounts, but they look different. And I think that when you have that situation, uh, you have no choice but to take a very serious look at the integrity of, of your sport, of your competition. Uh, do I think that, that the baseballs skewed or affected the result of this World Series? Maybe. I don't know. It, 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 we'll never know. Do I think it was any deliberate effort? No, I don't. I, I don't think that was the case. But I, I do think that, that there is a, an issue of the, of the equipment of the game. This is going to have to be addressed, I think, in a very, very uh, comprehensive way. Um, I think that will start in the matter of days for, for MLB. And, and I hope it doesn't cloud the, the outcome because, again, I don't really think it was de- determinative. I think the Astros were, were, the, were the worthy winner here. Uh, but I do think that, that MLB has to take a very thorough look um, just to make sure that everything is consistent. Again, I don't, I don't see anything untoward with the way things went this year. I think it was a variation. Certainly there was a variation. I don't think it was deliberate or uh, any subterfuge there, but I think it, uh, it does call to question, uh, I think, ways that MLB can improve and standardize things better, which I think they will work on uh, very, very seriously in, in the coming days. We're talking to John Morosi. He's up early with us, breaking down Game 7 last night. Final question for you, John. What should we be aware of as the offseason now is here? What big storylines exist between now and when pitchers and catchers report uh, in late February, early March? Well, a couple ones to follow here in the coming days. is Some major opt-outs to be decided for, for Justin Upton and Masahiro Tanaka, so those two 
pretty prominent free agents who could become free agents based on their contractual status. Shohei Otani, the Japanese pitching and hitting sensation. Uh, great reporting on this by Joel Sherman in the last 24 hours about uh, the lack of, a, of an agreement right now between MLB and, and NPB, the, the top Japanese league, on basically transfer rules there. So until that gets figured out, uh, Otani's status is very much up in the air, but we do expect, I think it's still likely that he'll find a way to come to MLB this winter, so that's going to be a huge story. Uh, and then also the, the teams, teams that have a lot of cachet in this industry, Clay, uh, that have had either managerial changes or disappointing seasons. I mentioned the, the Cardinals, the Giants, who had some uh, Giants had a very down year. The Nationals made a managerial change. They have their final year before Bryce Harper becomes a free agent. The Yankees still looking for a new manager. Uh, so uh, the Red Sox made a managerial change. Alex Cora, who just won the World Series last night with the Astros, he is the new skipper in Boston. They have to address their lineup, I believe, and their, uh, their lack of home runs this season. So you've got a lot of marquee teams. Clay, that are, that are driving, I believe, the offseason marketplace, which I think is always great. When you've got the Yankees needing to make a big improvement or a splash with a managerial change, the Nationals, the Red Sox, uh, and then, of course, those two teams I mentioned, the National League, the Cardinals, and the Giants who missed the playoffs. I think you have all the, all the pieces for a major, major hot stove, uh, uh, I think, for this year and a lot of excitement there. So J.D. Martinez might well be the one who gets the biggest contract among the hitters. He is going to be a major name to watch. John, thanks for getting up early with us, and uh, congratulations on another great season. Thanks, Clay. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me uh, all throughout the season. And, and my friend, you know you can call on me anytime there's, there's breaking news in baseball or Big Ten football, my friend. Some big games <laughs> coming up here this week, and we'll see if uh, Michigan State can score an upset there against the NA Lions. Not only that, you got to get back and roll uh, for the NHL playoffs as well. Uh, That's right. That is John I'll, I'll Morosi. That too. <laughs> There's John Morosi, jack of all trades uh, and uh, master of a few, actually, as opposed to master of none. You can go follow him on Twitter at j o n m o r o s i. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Ladies and gentlemen. I'm just glad I was there. Boys and girls. I thought he thought I was like this ginormous piece of chicken. Dying times here. I had a volunteer stretcher stuck to my face. Sam, you have a what? This is Animal Thunderdome. Thoughts. Boys, who wants to go first? I've got a couple here. One, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, here in the state where we do our show from. Does it a involve video bears? Captured, it does involve bears, as a matter of fact. Happened on Halloween. A video captured by a man posted to Facebook by a woman. An employee at Aunt Mahalia's Candies shows a bear running down a crowded street and into the downtown Gatlinburg shop. The bear might have been spooked into the shop, they say, by a crowd that, guess what, gathered to take photos of the animal on their camera phones. How many times have we told you bears don't necessarily like to be photographed? No customers in the store at the time. Employees are washing dishes in the back. Here's the quote from the employee. I come walking around like this, and there was a bear standing right there. And I looked at it like this, and I said, hang on one moment, and I'll be right back. I turned around, walked back to the door, and yelled, hey, Amy, there's a bear out here, unquote. The bear did not take any candy, but the employee said that they would have given it all because they felt sorry for the bear but apparently no candy was taken. This was quite the Halloween move as the Bears, again, as we talk about trying to be more human, now they're out trick-or-treating. Now, and going into a pretty good candy store, it looks like. I just pulled up the website for this place, Aunt Mahalia's Homemade Candies, the best homemade candies on earth. does look like they have some good uh, homemade candies, lots of those caramel apples, gummy bears, taffy, fudge. Lots of good options there. So the bear making a solid decision. Hopefully he got some good uh, candy before he left. Apparently he left with none. Oh. So that's a bad move. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Here's one. You might actually do this, Clay. This could happen to you. Back in Australia, probably stay out of that country, an Australian snake catcher called to the home of a panicked woman who spotted a serpent in her yard. Uh, Sippy Downs is her name. She's from Queensland. She called to request a snake removal in her yard. This is according to the snake, snake removal people. Quote, she rang and said, I think there's a snake in the backyard. I'm sitting still for the time being. Can you get someone out as soon as possible? She was stressed over the phone, so I got someone there ASAP. They send an employee to the woman's house to catch what was suspected to be a red-bellied black snake, but it turned out to be a rubber strap. 
It was not a snake. So who knows what could have been done by these snake people while they came out and grabbed a rubber strap out of this woman's yard that she owned. I am of the opinion that, there. first of all, I want to go visit Australia and New Zealand. That's the next uh, major trip that I've got on my checklist of places that I want to go. But I would think that based on all these stories that we have, that there are snakes everywhere in Australia. And so just having one in your backyard, I wouldn't think there would be like snake removal people. Because Australia has something like there's uh, 50 deadly animals, right? 50 deadly snakes. And I think 49 of them are from Australia. They're all from Australia. The deadliest snakes in the world are all from Australia. I'm very confident in that opinion. And somehow uh, I, I get the idea that they're everywhere. And so this idea that you would have to call because of a strap, this is not, this is not positive. Uh, yeah, all right. it's sad. Uh, L.A., any uh, Animal Thunderdome stories from you guys? Yeah, Clay, this one was actually forwarded over to us by uh, one of our listeners on Twitter. It's kind of scary, actually. Uh, this, this is happening over in Wales. Now, uh, apparently, scores of octopuses have. I, I read this. This yeah, is this. Yeah, this is a big story. They've walked out of the Irish Sea and beached themselves on the sand. Now, is an octopi army basically <laughs> is invading <laughs> Ireland. It's like D Day for octopus. Yeah, apparently, uh, the the phenomenon has marine experts scratching their heads. Uh, "Quote: We don't know quite know what's causing it. They were walking on the tips of their legs." That's the creepy part. I mean, it's okay. it's like okay. it's, it's it's like a zombie invasion of octopi. I mean, I, I I don't know what's going on, but I think that we just have to write off Ireland. You know how every now and then, like when you ha- play Risk, like one of the countries would get conquered. I think the octopus <laughs> now have Ireland. Rory McIlroy, he's dead dead to us. Conor McGregor, I don't think we can ever talk about him anymore. Ireland's just done. Or make a bonfire, mm, calamari. Well, that's not bad. I do love calamari. Do you like calamari, Jason Martin? Never had it. Big surprise. I, know. I just, I, uh, I knew it. I don't like seafood. Period. So, well, thank you. I'm ready to go home. <laughs> Unbelievable. How you? Never Ireland had is now the upside down. Uh, I don't know. I just I haven't had much seafood. The only seafood I've had is a little bit of shrimp, which I I liked okay, but that was really about it. I've just never been entranced by the idea of eating seafood, so I just haven't done it. There you go. No steak, no seafood. I just don't know what you're doing with your life. No steak, no seafood, no sex. Like I, you just sit around in in your underwear and watch Stranger Things over and over again on repeat and make jokes about you, Darvish. Um, joke uh, is great. Anything, anything else out there? No. Uh, the only other the, thing that there's one other one out in Georgia in Alpharetta, Georgia. A resident grabbed his phone, started filming. He saw an unusual sight: a farm's worth of animals wandering down the street. This video came out yesterday. It was goats, multiple, multiple donkeys, a cow, and a big hog all just wandering down a residential road in Alpharetta. Alpharetta is a suburb of Atlanta, so it's not exactly. like it's in the middle Here of nowhere. Here we go again. Remember, we've seen a tiger there. There's been a zebra on the loose. We talked yes. about this in past months. The filmer believes the beast may have strayed from a nearby farm. Really? You think that a bunch of farm animals might have come from a farm? That's really, really, that's, that's clever stuff by you. But there were seriously like eight farm animals just wandering down the street. Can you imagine being in a suburb? looking out your front window, and then just noticing there's a, basically a barnyard outside your house? I'll tell you this. I don't know what's up with deer, but there, I think the deer population is at an all-time high because there are deer everywhere in my neighborhood. Like, we were out trick-or-treating yesterday, and they're just deer. St- like, it used to be when I was a kid, if you saw a deer out in the wild, you were like, wow, I can't believe that there's a deer. Now I see them everywhere. I walk my kids to school, I see a deer. I walk, go trick-or-treating, there's deer. I don't know that this is true, but I'm saying it because it seems like it's true. Uh, it has truthiness to it. There's never been more deer in America than right now. We're at an all-time high for the deer population. Somebody confirm this. I feel very confident about it. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. Danny G, how painful. You're a huge Dodgers fan. Game 7 finally comes around. This could be your opportunity to redeem all of the frustrations that have existed in Dodger Nation since all the way back to 1988. And instead, boy, a bitter pill to swallow, especially the way I feel like it happened because going down 5 nothing that early, having Clayton Kershaw come in and pitch really well for four innings, everybody out there asking why did Clayton Kershaw not start the game? Why did everybody stick? Uh, why, why did Robert stick with you, Darvish for giving up that three-run homer to George Springer? Your thoughts in general on the game last night? 
Well, I'm still rocking my Dodgers hat with pride this morning. Dodger fans have thick skin. It's been decades since we got to the World Series. When the postseason first started, you asked me, remember, this was weeks and weeks back. You said, what would happen if the Dodgers exited the first round or didn't make it to the World Series or get to the World Series and lose? And I told you, well, if the Dodgers get to the World Series and lose, I'll definitely appreciate that ride. And I'm going to stick to that because what a ride it was. Now, obviously, it didn't end the way Dodger fans would have liked it to. Um, but you have to appreciate when your team goes on a great run. And the Dodgers had an amazing season. It just stinks that the worst game came at the worst time. And the the, the manager's being questioned, and I think he should be probably because and, – and uh, J-Mart can speak to this a little bit. I was talking to him about this off the air – Throughout the World Series, Clay, and you can answer this too, don't you think Dave Roberts overmanaged a little bit in the previous six games? I, I always think that in nowadays in baseball, it's so hard for me to judge because I think about baseball in the context of the way that I grew up watching it, and I feel like in this analytics era, everything is overanalyzed, everything is overscheduled, everybody overmanages. And I feel like it happened so much more substantially. And look, I mean, I thought the Astros overmanaged uh, last night when they got up uh, 5 nothing. I mean, y- you would have thought that they were up, you know, uh, I-, I don't know, one nothing the way they were shifting things. I mean, I almost thought if the Dodgers could ever get a hit that the Astros were going to crumble under the pressure. They couldn't ever really add that pressure. The Dodgers couldn't. But when I watch a baseball game, if I compare it to when I was growing up, and I was a huge baseball fan as a kid, you know, the late 80s, the 90s, there's no similarity hardly at all. I mean, baseball has changed so much from when I was a kid. It's crazy to even watch. Yeah, what Danny's referring to, what I was talking to him about off air, is nobody in this series could throw a slider consistently. And you had the talk about these baseballs feeling extra slick and Verlander noticing it and having to try to adjust in his second start. Look, that's what you Darvish does. He throws sliders. So my argument was Dave Roberts did overmanage. He pulled um he pulled his he pulled Rich Hill in his first start after yeah, 60. Yeah, with only pitches. 60, yep. Yeah, while he was absolutely dealing, he seemed to have a quick hook and then last night he puts in you which is questionable to begin with because of his reliance on off-speed and especially on the slider which no one could throw with these baseballs as opposed to going to somebody that actually could have handled these baseballs a little bit better, and then he left him in too long. So he had a quick hook in the wrong spots, and then last night he left somebody in too long, which is why I put a lot less of this on you and a lot more of this on Dave Roberts, quite frankly. Yeah, I think when you have, to me, when you are as bad as you Darvish was, I don't think anybody could have managed him well. I mean, now once you make the decision that you're going to go to him in Game 7 and kind of stick to your routine – I think that's on him, and uh, I thought he was just atrocious. I mean, I don't, I don't even know, you know, when you try to put it contextually, where could you even put this performance? I feel like in many ways he's sliding under the radar because he's not that well-known compared to Clayton Kershaw, and so a lot of people focus on the Dodgers there. But, I mean, this is like going into a, uh, a Super Bowl and throwing six or seven interceptions. I mean, we're talking about the worst performance in two games for a starting pitcher since 1960 or 61 to get pulled in two different games before you complete the second inning is a different caliber level of failure that it's almost hard to even quantify in terms of another sport. I mean, it's like shooting an 85 on the final day in a golf tournament when you have the lead. It's like throwing six or seven interceptions in the Super Bowl. I mean, he wasn't just bad. He was different caliber level bad and it cost the Dodgers two games in this series you could have stopped the bleeding at two to nothing yeah I mean yeah the point the point is that's like what's your Super Bowl analogy that's like throwing a quarterback out there who throws five interceptions realizing as a shoulder injury after he throws his first one and then leaves him in the game and then he's unable to throw the ball you can't put you Darvish out there when you don't when he doesn't have his weapon he could not throw his slider so to put him out there at all was a mistake that's a Dave Roberts decision yeah, but whether he was out there is fine. But he was atrocious when he was out there. He shouldn't have been out there, in my if opinion. If it were that easy to know, don't you think that his – I mean, I would love to know. Was there a single person on his coaching staff who was making the argument that you're making? Because they see no, a lot more. 
they see a lot more of these pitches than we do, right? If you if that's true, then you would think the pitching coach would have been watching him warm up and doing all his throwing outside of the time when we're sitting there with the cameras watching and would have gone back to Dave Roberts and said, hey, guess what? We don't have the ability to get the cut that we need on this pitch. It's not working with these baseballs. Like I would, if if that internal deliberation was happening, then that would actually be an intriguing storyline to follow. If it wasn't, then you're presuming a level of knowledge that may not actually exist. Like when you go back, I'm not an expert on baseball. You're not an expert on baseball. If you brought in somebody who was a true expert on the game, would they be able to watch the way these pitches were moving and say, "Hey, he just didn't have the ability to do it," or did he just on the hits, you know, the pitches that they hit? Did he just miss, right? I mean, was it was it George Springer sitting on the right pitch and delivering at the right moment? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, to me, again, McCullers hit four guys. Uh, how much of this was nerves? I mean, how great could he have looked in warmups and in, in the pitcher, you know, in, in everything before you actually get out there on the mound? I tend to put it on the athlete more than I do the coach. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree in most cases. All I'm suggesting is this was not something that just came out of thin air last night. It's been talked about for a couple of games that no one has been able to throw a slider in this series. So this didn't just magically emanate from nowhere. But if that's true, then is there somebody on his coaching staff that is making the argument you, Darvish, is not able to pitch with these baseballs? I mean, I don't know. I I don't know. The only argument... I mean, nobody's probably ever going to know the answer to that question, but I would suggest to you that after he struggled early, you realize then, because they I don't know that they heard any of this, but this critique was everywhere that you couldn't throw a slider. So after he's unable to do it early and he does not have his control and he does not have his command, why leave him in there to throw those extra three interceptions? I think the interception, yeah. I think the answer is probably because of the batting situation. He didn't want to bring in Morrow like he did for one batter, and then you have to then go ahead and remove him, and you don't get the extra couple of innings that you were hoping to get from the pitcher. I think that's probably the answer in that situation. Like, why well, didn't he Darvish, pull him? But Darvish looked like garbage in the first inning, and it was down exactly. two runs, so why not start off the next half inning clean with – you know, with Morrow or Kershaw, whoever you want to go to next, start the inning clean with somebody else. I mean, he should have been on a short leash to begin with. Yeah, the yeah, situation would still have struggle. been your – I think the answer is, I bet, if you, if you really pressed him, he didn't want to have to bring in a pitcher for three three batters, especially a pitcher that he knew was good. I mean, and, and, and that's the situation that they faced, right, because uh, when they brought in Morrow for one out to finish the second inning, then he was done. I, I'm, I'm remembering that correctly, right? And then Kershaw came in to yeah, start the third right. inning. But so because I think you prob- did have Kershaw, and I mean, he didn't know then that Kershaw was going to be able to go four, uh, you know, four shutout innings, but you knew Kershaw was fired up to redeem himself. You know there's a bunch of other guys in the dugout that want I think, the ball. I think the bigger question is just why not go with Clayton Kershaw to start the game? Well, I agree I, with I think that. that. That's, I agree I with think you there. That, that's a more intriguing question. And to yeah, be fair to Robert, Best pitcher on the planet, and there is no tomorrow, so why right. not? Yeah, and yeah, to be fair to Roberts, I didn't hear anybody out there saying that they should start Clayton Kershaw in Game 7. I wish, in retrospect, we had done the show yesterday, and I'd been like, you know what? I'd go ahead and put Clayton Kershaw in. Why do I even trust you, Darvish? Like Those are all, in, in retrospect, I think what he's thinking is, I can get three or four innings out of you, Darvish, then I can go to Clayton Kershaw for three or four innings, and then we go to Jansen, and this game is over, and we win. I think that's probably it. Maybe he's also thinking, I'll get a bridge with Morrow, and we'll be able to use Morrow for an inning or two, and we'll get our four best pitchers all just like firing on all cylinders. Um, and obviously, it didn't work out. And I think that the sad thing about Game 7 is just, I think I speak for the average sports fan a lot of times, and I was pretty excited to see a really entertaining Game 7. I mean, I if you follow me, on the afternoon show that I do on the Periscope and the Facebook Live, I went and took a nap because I'm like, man, this thing's not going to be over till late. I want to make sure that I don't fall asleep during this game. I got to prep for game seven. It's rare that I would ever do that for a sporting event, but I had bought into this series and I was pretty excited to see a really entertaining game seven. And I felt like all the air just got let out of the balloon in innings one and two. And then the Dodgers just with 10 runners left on the base were never able to make that, get that hit it kind of changes everything. And Yasiel Puig is swinging out of his shoes. And so many of those guys, because it's 5 nothing as opposed to 2 nothing or 3 nothing, 
are feeling like we need one big stroke. We need to make it 5-3. We need to make it 5-2 with one swing and give our team a chance to actually uh, come back here. And they just never did. They never got that hit that made it interesting. That's what made that mismanagement of the pitching situation so much more frustrating is the fact that going down by that many runs – all the Dodger players started to – they wanted to be the jo- the Jock Peterson of Game 7, meaning they wanted to be the hero with one swing of the bat. And really, they just needed to get a single or a double, get on base, move the runners over. They weren't doing the simple fundamentals to get, uh, you know, their base runners, uh, you know, home. So Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you though – You start if you swinging in- for the moon, and you saw Bellinger strike out. You saw Peterson strike out in a couple of clutch s- situations. And that's what went wrong is the fact that you get down by that many and everybody starts trying to just, you know, jack the ball over the fence. All right, the way that Springer is hitting, though, if they pull, let's say they pull you, Darvish, and Springer comes in and immediately hits that three-run homer against Clayton Kershaw, then everybody is saying, why in the world is Clayton Kershaw in here? He's only on three days rest. You know, whoever you put in, Morrow, whatever. Springer is hitting so well. He's got four home runs up to that point, right? And 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 he's hit him off a lot of different guys. So when he hits his fifth home run to equal Reggie Jackson and is it Utley with the most home runs in the history of the World Series, when he does that, no matter what happens, the thing about baseball is everybody questions the result and assumes that the result would have been different if you had changed the outcome. What if the real story here is just Springer is hitting like a madman and it wouldn't really have mattered whether you Darvish was delivering the pitch or whether Clayton Kershaw or Morrow or Jansen, for that matter, he's going to find a way to get a big-time hit in a big-time situation. That, to me, is the, the ultimate story here is that he was phenomenal in this series and ultimately the Astros were able to take advantage of the Dodger pitching. And the Dodger bats really never got hot. I mean, even though they scored a lot of runs, the actual batting average was never that, you know, it was never that exciting. There was never a role that you felt like uh, the Dodgers were on by and large. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, and Lee Bogan and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now.